So we continue in our series of messages on the gospel. The pastor had asked me to preach a message about the gospel in the Old Testament. And uh, he said, I want you to use Isaiah 53. And I said, okay, I can do that. And then I argued with him a little bit and said, can I go to another passage of scripture? And he said, no, can't you preach a message from Isaiah 53? I said, well, yeah, I can do that. I can preach a message from Isaiah 53. So we're going to get there in a minute, but uh, first we're going to go somewhere else. <laughs> so you have your scriptures open to Isaiah 53. Um, Unfortunately, we only have time to talk about the first six verses here of Isaiah 53. And among the many things that this chapter does, the most important part is in the title. It demonstrates to us that the gospel was already in existence long before it ever happened in the New Testament. A single message on Isaiah 53 doesn't, doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of how powerful, how magnificent, just, just how awesome this chapter is. I would say it's arguably the greatest chapter in all the Bible, for sure in all the Old Testament. Charles Spurgeon called it the Bible in miniature. Augustine called the entire book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Martin Luther declared that every Christian should have the chapter memorized. John Calvin's collection of sermons on Isaiah 53 are called the gospel according to Isaiah. And this chapter is referred to by the early church more than any other passage in the Old Testament. So that should give us some pause to consider the fact that this chapter might just be very, very important. Isaiah 53 is quoted directly in Matthew chapter 8, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 12, Acts 8, Romans 10, Romans 15, and 1 Peter chapter 2. Just a few references. The first six books of the New Testament plus 1 Peter are saying to us that if we really want to know about Jesus and what he came to accomplish in this world, then you have to go back to Isaiah 53. The manner in which the crucifixion and atonement of Christ is described in Isaiah 53 makes a person believe that surely Isaiah could not be prophecy. It has to be history. It's almost as if Isaiah was an eyewitness to what was happening. But yet Isaiah 53... It's prophecy, proclaiming with infallible accuracy 700 years in advance what Jesus would be like, what he would do. 700 years in advance. Now, hold your place in Isaiah chapter 53, and I want you to turn to the New Testament to Acts chapter 8. So turn to the New Testament to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look specifically at verse 30 and following. So hold your place, turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 30. Now, let me demonstrate how the early apostles, how the early church understood Isaiah 53 and how valuable it was to them. In Acts chapter 8, if you know the story, the Lord tells Philip to go down to a desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Philip doesn't have any idea why he's been given these instructions, but he follows through. He obeys just like he's supposed to. And on the way, he approaches an Ethiopian who was struggling with understanding a passage of Scripture. All right? So listen to what the text says in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him 
and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in scripture where he, or excuse me, the place in scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture, and I love this phrase, it says he preached Jesus to him. He understood that that passage in Isaiah 53 was talking about Jesus. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament is the coming Messiah more clearly and more fully revealed than in the prophecies of Isaiah. But of all the prophecies, and there are lots in Isaiah that talk about the coming king, Isaiah 53 is the cream of the crop. It rises above all the rest because it's truly, truly the gospel message from the Old Testament. And I think if we are to understand it best, I think we might best say it this way. We are Christians because of the Old Testament. All right? I know that might sound strange. But without the Old Testament, believing the new would be very difficult. In other words, how do I know that Jesus is the Messiah if I don't have all the predictions of the Old Testament defining him and describing him when he shows up in the New Testament? And yet there are some well-known preachers that want to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament and just focus on the new only. The simple truth here is that the gospel message in the old and the new is virtually the same. The good news has always been an Old Testament concept. We can even trace it back all the way to its roots in Genesis chapter 3, but no passage more clearly and more succinctly explains what the gospel is all about in the person of Christ than Isaiah 53. Now, let me just add a point here as well um, about our opportunities that we get to tell others about Christ. Um, a lot of times we use different types of methods. Probably the, one of the most famous ones is the Romans Road, where we go down through Roman, the Romans Road and show people that they're a sinner and they need a Savior and ask them to believe on Jesus Christ. It's very simple. Well, let me just add this thought. Why not the next time you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone that you start with Isaiah 53 as a starting point. Show them how the gospel was revealed ahead of time in the Old Testament, and then take them to the New Testament and show them how it's fulfilled in Jesus. You'll give them a complete picture of the gospel message. But we're not going to do that. I don't have time to talk about that, but that's just something I wanted to, to add. Now, the last few verses of chapter 52 of Isaiah are actually part of this whole section in Isaiah 53. And we don't have an opportunity or the time to go through those verses. So for the sake of time, we're just going to stay in the first six verses of Isaiah 53. Um, if we had maybe three hours, we might be able to get through of Isaiah 53. Um, but I don't want to be standing for three hours, and you probably don't want to be sitting for three hours. So this entire section of Isaiah 53 is divided up into into four sections of three verses each, okay? So the first section we need to look at is verses one, two, and three, and this section talks about the rejection of Christ, 
all right, talks about the rejection of Christ. So let's read this text here, Isaiah 53. We'll read the whole thing up through verse 6 to listen to what it says. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as, and out, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This first section of three verses here talks about the rejection of Christ. And so you look at verse 1, it talks about the arm of the Lord. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm was a symbol of a soldier going to battle. The contrast here is that women, women during this time covered their arms, but a soldier's arm was free. It represented power, readiness, and courage. But we're not talking about any kind of arm. It's the arm of the Lord, which is a symbol of God's strength, of his power, of the spectacular ways throughout the Old Testament that God revealed himself, not just to individuals, but to the nation of Israel. If we were to look back in the preceding chapter of Isaiah 53, we would find the phrase arm of the Lord shows up several times. It's already here in the larger context. But in Isaiah 53, the phrase is referring to God's power as demonstrated through his atoning work on the cross. This arm of the Lord or power of the gospel had been revealed to the world through the nation of Israel. Israel was supposed to be the arm of the Lord to the nations. They were to be the light to the nations. They were to show how the strong one would come from Israel. But the sad news is, as the text says, very few believe the report. Who has believed the report? Very, very few have believed the report. In fact, Matthew chapter 7 is a classic reminder that narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Very few believe the report. And you know why? Look at what verse 2 says. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, this verse isn't telling us that Jesus was ugly, okay? It's not what it's telling us. You might think it might be telling us that, although that didn't stop artwork in the Middle Ages from depicting Jesus as frightening or repulsive. If you ever see some of the artwork there, it's rather repulsive um, because of how they're depicting Jesus. But the words in the text support the thinking of an external look of a king, the pomp and circumstance that goes with a royal procession. The important Roman dignitaries that would come all decked out in their official garb. And it seems that the Jewish people thought that their Messiah would be just like this. This is what a king should look like. This is what a king should be. So surely he can't be our king. In fact, in Jesus' hometown, listen to what his hometown 
describes him as. Matthew 13, verse 54. Listen to what it says. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, it says. Offended. People had already made up their mind that this person that had grown up amongst them could not be the Messiah. Surely no, not this fella. This one who's lived in obscurity is a carpenter's son. Surely this one, he's not the one. They had already, it says they were offended by him. How, why would you ever make that claim as if they were asking Jesus? The deeper meaning here is a reference to what we call the incarnation of Christ. And incarnation means when Christ took on the form of a human body. And you probably know well John chapter 1 verse 1 that says the word, what, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. God himself, Jesus Christ, became flesh and lives among us. So what the text is telling us is that Jesus came disguised as a man. That's why he wasn't recognized. He didn't come in a glorious blaze of light from heaven, followed by some angelic army that is going to wipe out all those against Christ. Now, other Old Testament prophecies, as well as the book of Revelation, tell us that that's going to happen one day at the second coming. But the first coming He was disguised, and he was disguised as a man. He was disguised just like us. At his first coming, it was humble and quiet. He came in such a way that only those who believed his message would have had their eyes open to his identity. It almost sounds like they were embarrassed that he was claiming to be their king. Like, no, 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 we don't want to associate with Jesus now. He says he's our king, but he's not really our king. No, 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 he's not. Remember when they got upset because uh, I believe it was Pilate that put the epitaph on Jesus? You know, here's the king of the Jews. Like, no, 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 we need to take that off. He's not our king. We don't want to be associated with him at all. Now, you know, I can't help but read this text here in the eyes of today's culture. And in fact, in the midst of our current impeachment process. You know, we have politicians all over the country that refuse to acknowledge that our current president is fit to be the president. What are the reasons? He doesn't look like a president. He doesn't act like one. He isn't a politician. His speech is not polished. He doesn't know what the people really want. He doesn't cooperate. He's a bully, they might say. What they are trying to say is that he doesn't fit our mold of what a president should look, act, be like, and talk like. And that's exactly what the Jewish people thought concerning Jesus. He's not one of us. He he doesn't look like us. He doesn't act like us. He doesn't have all the status and standing of us. He doesn't have the heritage, all that stuff. He doesn't look like one of us. And you know, the sad reality is that the religious leaders knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. They knew that he would arrive in Bethlehem Take the story of the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. The wise men follow the star to worship the king. When they get to Jerusalem and they ask Herod, Herod, where is this newborn king that's born king of the Jews? We want to we go worship him. Herod is frazzled. What do you mean? Nobody's told me. And he goes to his religious leaders to give him some insight on what the wise men are talking about. And guess what? The religious leaders come back and they give him book, chapter, and verse of where Jesus will be born. Now, 
you didn't have chapter and verse, okay? That hasn't existed yet. Book, chapter and verse don't come into play until 1260 AD, okay? But you get my point. They knew exactly book, chapter, and verse. The prophecy of when and where, excuse me, where Jesus would come. And so they quote Micah 5 2. The passage tells us that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is six miles away from Jerusalem, just six. I've preached on this before. If they truly believe this prophecy, then don't you think they should have taken the two-hour camel ride down to Jerusalem, six miles away? I'm guessing it takes two hours on a camel. I've never gone on a camel for two hours before. I guess it would go six miles. But surely you could walk and get there within a few hours. But they didn't want to because a king isn't born in a lowly stable. A king isn't born with animals. A king doesn't have Nobody there when he arrives. They were embarrassed, just like a thousand years before Christ was born. The nation of Israel wanted a king. They had become so embarrassed by the absence of a visible king. In fact, when people visited their cities in ancient Israel and asked, Now, where's your king? Where, where's he at? They had to tell them, well, our king, he's sort of invisible. Um, He rules from the heavens. Sometimes he shows up in human forms, but most of the time he rules from heaven. Okay? They had become so embarrassed that the people finally came to Samuel and demanded a king. We want a king what? Like the other nations have one. Exactly the same way. They were embarrassed back in the Old Testament to have their king reigning from heaven. They wanted a king like the other nations. In fact, there was an occasion where Jesus did demonstrate his power, and it's called the transfiguration. But only three people saw it, Peter, James, and John. And even then, they misunderstood the point because they wanted to elevate Moses and Elijah on equal footing with Jesus, and it was God himself who had to thunder from the mountain and speak and say, pay attention to Jesus only. Forget about these other two fellows. Jesus is the one that's most important. Even in the midst of them walking with Jesus for how many years? Three and a half years. They still wanted to take Moses and Elijah and elevate them on equal status with Jesus. They didn't get the point. To them, they still had a a kind of this this feeling that, I don't know about Jesus. Is he really going to be the king? Is he really supposed to do what he says he's going to do? I don't know. Is he going to follow through and do it? They were still thinking that way. Verse 3 continues this thought of Jesus' rejection. It says he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, the word men here, it's a word that denotes not just any kind of man, but it talks about men of dignity, men of importance, men of power here is what it's saying. You see, it was the religious leaders who had the biggest problems with Jesus not fitting their Messiah molds. And it was the religious leaders that Jesus reserved the harshest words for. But you notice the word despised is used twice. And that's the emphasis in this verse of how much they despised him, how much they hated him, how much they wanted to have nothing to do with him. Despise means disdain. It means contempt. It means with all they had, they wanted to get rid of him. His teaching and his claims were so offensive, yet his teachings and his claims lined up perfectly with the Old Testament. That's what frustrated them the most. Here was someone who had all this connection to connect the new and the old together, but yet he doesn't look like a king. Uh, He doesn't act like one. He doesn't do the things we want him to do. They 
despised him. He was rejected by all kinds of men. The, the Hebrew literally reads, he was forsaken of men. It's a reminder that on the night of his betrayal, Matthew 26, who stays with Jesus? Nobody. Absolutely no one. They all leave him. They all forsake him. No one stayed behind in his greatest need, in his greatest hour. Nobody stays behind. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the scene was the exact opposite of what Israel expected of a Messiah. Here is a man so marred beyond human recognition, rejected and forsaken by his closest followers. He truly, truly was, as the text says, a man of sorrows. And not just the sorrow of physical pain, but mental pain, emotional pain, extreme anguish, unspeakable torment. You and I can't even begin to fathom what kind of suffering and torment The word grief, the idea of sickness or disease. You know, one scholar pointed out that when the New Testament mentions the emotions of Jesus, the text is always speaking in language of sorrow. Now, that does not mean that Jesus never had joy or laughed or, or had a good meal or, 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 or cut up with his friends. It doesn't say that at all. But what the scripture does mention is his human emotions. And when it does speak of those, it speaks of his sorrow. Think of the story of Lazarus when Jesus came and Lazarus had died, what's he do? He cries. When he got to Jerusalem, he wept over the city because he knew what was going to happen. When shortly before the Passover, it says his soul was troubled. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he was greatly distressed and troubled. Uh, This man of sorrows was truly acquainted with every kind of grief, every kind possible. That's why he's our great high priest. It's because he knows exactly mm, He knows exactly what we feel like. He knows every part of it. But the torment of his body was so appalling that it says, literally, became one from whom men hid their faces. They did not even want to look at him. They didn't even want to acknowledge him, not even look at him. But then it gets worse because the verse says, they did not esteem him. And esteem is an accounting term, meaning to impute or to reckon or to count. And here it simply means that they counted what he did, his life and his ministry, and to them it added up as nothing, a nobody. This was the ultimate expression of scorn. He was a nothing, he was a nobody. He was rejected, rejected even though he fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament. And they had it. They knew where those prophecies were. But you know what? They just didn't like the fact of who he was. Their mentality of who the Messiah would be was different. Now, verses 1, 2, and 3 talk about his rejection. But verses 4, 5, and 6 talk about his death. Look at what verse 4 says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And these verses are at the very heart of this prophecy. In fact, this is the why that Jesus came into the world. You know, the New Testament authors in the Gospels tell you exactly what happened, the events and how it transpired and who did what. In this Old Testament passage in Isaiah 53, it demonstrates to us the why that Jesus came. Why in the world would he do this? Well, we know he came to be a substitute for sinners and to bear the guilt before a holy God. But these verses give more insight in detail on why Christ died than even in those four New Testament Gospels. The why. Now look at what verse 4 says. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And it's true, the Messiah shares our griefs and our sorrows. He is a merciful high priest like the book of Hebrews tells us. He can sympathize with everything that we ever would go through. But the point is here that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Bore means to lift up or to take up. Jesus literally took our sins and all its effects on himself, even though he himself did not sin. He suffered under the weight of humanity's sin. He has taken all on himself, the full burden of people's guilt and sin, all of its consequences, including the ultimate consequence, which was death. So that Hebrews 9.28 says he was offered to bear the sins of many. But however, because of the way that Jesus' earthly ministry ended, crucifixion on the cross, the Jewish nation wrongly concluded that he could not be the long-awaited Messiah. Look at what it says. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at these words. Stricken translates a Hebrew word that is often used of leprosy. They didn't want to get anywhere close to him, anywhere near him at all. It's almost as if those lepers, you know, yelling, unclean, unclean. They didn't want to have anything to do, not even touch him or get near him. It seems that the people believe that God was judging Jesus for his blasphemous claims. Smitten means to strike or to beat down. Affliction, a general term of humiliation or mistreatment or oppression. All three words, stricken, smitten, and affliction, are connected and modified with the prepositional phrase, by God. In other words, the people believe that Jesus was getting exactly what he deserved. For claiming to be God, for his blasphemous claims, his public shame, it's warranted. It's required. It's deserved. And that official position of the ancient Jews was that God was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, and the Jews were just God's obedient servant in doing it. That's all we are. We're not held responsible or accountable for it. But despite the goodness of Jesus, for no one could find any fault in him, the Jews felt there's got to be something fundamentally wrong with him. Nobody's this good. Nobody keeps the law this well. Nobody can do these types of things. Something's got to be wrong with him. Something has to be wrong. They were determined to find something wrong with him. It was their job to find. And guess what? Surprise. They found something, right? They found it. They said he was guilty of blasphemy. Their reasoning was this, that if Jesus had been an innocent man and he upheld the law as he claimed he would do, then God would have rewarded him and he would have been openly vindicated. It would have been clear to all the religious leaders that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. For how could the whole of the Jewish establishment have missed the Messiah? Surely we wouldn't have missed that. 
No, we couldn't have missed that. How could we have missed that? But lest we miss the small words in the text, it was a deliberate choice to reject Jesus. You notice the pronouns we. We esteemed him. Just like it was a deliberate choice for the religious leaders not to investigate the prophecy that was brought to their attention by the wise men from the east. They were smart enough to know the prophecy that said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but they were foolish not to take the six-mile journey to see him. And in fact, the wise men in that text are a product of their character. They were wise in taking a journey to investigate the Christ child, and God protected him for that. Now, even though the Jewish people utterly and completely rejected Jesus, it did not stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission on earth. Let that sit with you for a moment. Even though the Jewish people utterly despised, rejected, held him in contempt, laughed and made fun of him as he was being drugged through the streets, being mocked and scourged, even though the Jewish people utterly rejected Jesus, it did not stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission on earth. He didn't say, well, this is getting a little too much for me to handle. I need to go back, and I'll come back again when they're ready. No, he did not stop. He was obedient to the Father's will in spite of the rejection from the very people he came to save. The very people, the nation of Israel, that brought the Messiah into the world through the line of the Messiah, through the nation of Israel, the very people that brought him into the world were the very people that rejected him completely. But in spite of all that, it didn't stop him from fulfilling his mission, and that's not the end of the story. And that's why verse 5 is so, so, so powerful. Look at what it says. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment or chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Wounded is a translation of, can be also translated as pierced in other Bible translations, as it did his side being pierced. The word comes from a Hebrew word that carries the idea of a fatal blow. That's what wounded means. The word bruise is used in other translations as well as to mean crush. And it has the picture of taking a lump of dirt and completely crushing or pulverizing it into dust. Jesus was crushed under the weight of humanity's sin. This is why Jesus cries out. He's so crushed under the weight of humanity's sin, that Jesus has to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins were transferred to Jesus as though as he were the guilty one. And Jesus was punished so we could be at peace with the Father once again. Now, when Jesus talks, when the text talks about peace here, it's not an emotional thing. It's not a feeling of calmness. It's a state of peace. See, because before Jesus died, the whole world was in a state of war. And, but Jesus changed that by being punished for us. And our state of war with God has been reversed. Now we have a state of peace 
as the book of Romans tells us. But that last phrase in the verse, by his stripes we are healed. That's a fantastic phrase because it doesn't refer to any sense of of immediate physical healing. Those who believe are healed in the sense of being restored to the spiritual wholeness and released from the bondage of sin. It's the only remedy for an incurable spiritual condition. By his stripes, we are healed. So think of verse 5 here that we've just gone through as an explicit confession of your sinful behavior or of my sinful behavior. Reminds me of Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But listen, I put a few things in here. Listen to this verse. He was dealt a fatal blow for my transgressions. He was crushed under the enormous weight of my sin. The punishment for my perpetual war with God was reversed by him. And he endured complete suffering and death on my behalf in order to restore me to the Father. And by the way, all of that he volunteered for. He wasn't forced to the altar and tied to it like a sacrificial lamb. He went willingly. He went willingly. Verse 5 is a demonstration to us of how sinful we are. But yet in the spite of all that sinfulness that we can't even imagine, that we can't even comprehend. It didn't stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission. It didn't stop him at all. He went willingly. That's why verse 6 is really good. And if you need a John 3.16 for the Old Testament, this is the verse. John 3.16 we know in the New Testament, right? You guys should know this. This is the most famous verse probably in all the Bible. Most memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Well, the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament is Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid on Jesus the iniquity of all mankind. For God so loved the world that what he gave his son to be a sacrifice for all mankind. There it is. John 3, 16. So man's natural response to God's love is that we all like sheep have gone astray and live lives according to our own wicked ways. But God has shown mercy by putting our sins on Jesus. That's the point. Now there is a reason, in fact, many reasons why God chose to use sheep as an analogy of human beings. Douglas Macmillan was a shepherd in the highlands of Scotland before he became a minister. And listen to what he notes about sheep. This is how he describes sheep. First, the basic habit of a sheep is to wander, to go astray. Huh. Sounds like us, right? The basic tendency of us is to wander. Second, they always think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence or in the other pasture. And it is, isn't it? It's always greener over there, right? It's always greener. We think the same thing. Third, they follow one another. It's called the herding instinct. But we don't go with crowds, do we? No, we don't do that. Not at all. In fact, he says that when a sheep is alone, something's wrong with the sheep. Uh, You know, it's a few fries short of a Happy Meal or something. Something's not right. He's got to go like sickness or disease or something. Fourth, they are stubborn. They always want their own way. We're not stubborn, are we? No. Anywhere close. 
We might as well just keep deceiving ourselves. Fifth, a sheep always wants to get back into the area in which it was born. I thought that was interesting. It always wants to get back into the area in which it was born. And I think the same thing is true for us. We always fall back in that tendency of that sinful nature from what we're born with. We always fall back. It's not a physical location like coming back to here in this area. It's going back to that, what we're born with, that sin nature. Sixth, he says, and he says this, they're stupid. He says, you can't teach a sheep a trick. Have you ever seen a sheep do a trick? I've never seen a sheep do a trick. Even cattle don't need a shepherd or a sheepdog, but sheep do. You get it? Shepherd, sheep, sheepdog has sheep in the name. So they need these things. They wander astray with no thought of what is coming next. And finally, a sheep yearns for authority and guidance. It always needs and wants a shepherd to perpetually guide them. If we didn't know any better, we might think that this was a description of mankind's sinful habits and sinful tendencies, not the nature of a sheep. But that's the reason why the analogy is so striking. Even the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. Why do we love Psalm 23? Because it's the imagery of a shepherd leading the sheep of a shepherd protecting the sheep because he is our great shepherd and he is going to lead us. Now, the last part of verse 6. This is the heart. This truly is the heart of the gospel. The Lord God has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now, the word iniquity is a Hebrew word that covers the worst possible kind of sin. In ancient Israel, there were basically two types of sins. Today in our world, there are basically two types of sins. Intentional ones and unintentional ones. And the offerings carried by the Old Testament priests only covered the unintentional sins. It did not cover the intentional ones, or we might call it the premeditated ones. These sins were called, quote, sins with a high hand, or one who sins defiantly. There was no sacrificial offerings for these types of sins. So when King David deliberately takes another man's wife, he's committing an intentional sin. There's no sacrifice available for it. The only thing that David can do is to plead with the Lord for mercy. And thankfully, God is the one that gives us mercy. So when you see that word iniquity, it's extremely powerful because it means that our sins that were laid upon Christ to bear on the cross were not just sins that were occasioned by accident or misstep or oversight or, oops, I didn't know that, or I'm sorry, I forgot. They're sins of defiance. They're blatant sins, sins that knowing what is wrong and not caring to keep doing it anyway. Christ bore all those sins. He was our substitute. He satisfied that wrath of God. Now, the big question here is why? Why would Jesus want to do all that for me, for you? The only thing that the Bible says, the only reason that it gives is because he loves us. Mankind, his crowning creation you know, in the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve had a full and unhindered relationship with God in the garden before their fall. And after their fall into sin, their relationship with God was hindered by this new problem we call sin. Sin was a barrier that had to be overcome. And the only thing that could overcome the sins of humanity was and is the perfect sacrifice. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the very thing that God does next is he starts a plan to fix what mankind messed up in the garden. The very next thing. By the way, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, we would classify that as an intentional sin. It was a sin they committed knowing full well. What did God say? Don't, don't take of the tree. Don't eat of the fruit. What did they do? He gave them specific instructions. They took the fruit. They did it anyway. It wasn't a, oops, I didn't know. Nobody told me. No. They did it anyway. And the only way that you and I can be restored back into relationship with God is by fixing the sin problem. Something that God knew that we could never do on our own. That's why he sent a son. God in his infinite wisdom knew that we would never be able to cure the sin problem on our own. And we would never be able to give the perfect sacrifice no matter how much we tried. So God provided us the perfect one in his son, in Jesus. And all the sins of mankind were placed on the shoulders of Jesus one Friday afternoon in a grand effort by God himself to fix once and for all this enormous sin problem. And the good news, or the gospel, is that God's plan worked, didn't it? God's plan worked. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. It worked. It worked. It took, we might say. Now, earlier we mentioned about Isaiah 53 being a prophecy. Isaiah 53 was written some 700 years before these events of Christ's death ever happened. Okay, this truly is the gospel in the Old Testament. And we haven't been going through gospel accounts one by one. We've referred to them. We've been going through Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. See how it's clearly seen? And because it's so clearly seen, Isaiah has its share of critics. The book of Isaiah is a favorite target of critics. They don't believe that Isaiah could write such a prophecy and they try to explain it away with different theories. Oh, it's not really prophecy, it's history. You know, he wrote much later after the events of Jesus, and that's why it's so, so close to what exactly happened. They use all these different excuses. Well, a serious blow came to these critics in 1947 when the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of ancient manuscripts that were discovered in, in the area of Israel. And let me explain this to you. One of the first and best preserved documents discovered was a complete scroll of Isaiah. All right? A complete scroll of Isaiah. Remember, they didn't have books like us. They had a scroll, so you had to roll it out. So you can imagine how great, big, large, Isaiah 6, six chapters, you know, this scroll would be. So it would be huge. They call it the Great Isaiah Scroll. And this scroll was more than a thousand years older than any other of the current manuscripts at that time. And the scroll was dated, not by Bible believers necessarily, but was dated by science that everyone agrees with. 150 to 125 B.C. 
That's before Christ. So nearly 200 years before the death and crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Christ happened, this scroll has been dated, okay? Now here's the rub. When they compared the Dead Sea Isaiah scroll, they set it down, and they compared it to our current Hebrew text of Isaiah, which is what we've been reading. It's translated into English for our understanding pleasure, right? (laughs) 95% in agreement with only 5% of variation consisted mainly in variation of spelling. That means this, that history has documented that nearly 200 years before the time of Christ, the book of Isaiah was already well-established and thoroughly documented in the exact form and the exact content that we have today. In other words, history has just demonstrated to us that Isaiah is prophecy. And that also means that the most epic event or epic prophecy of them all, Isaiah 53, was prophesied long before it actually ever happened. Now, we don't need history to demonstrate to us that the Bible is true. We believe the Bible is true based upon faith. But listen, when history shows us that, man, that sure is nice, isn't it? That sure is encouraging. That sure gives us hope. That gives us authenticity. That gives you some fuel, I guess, to add to your fire when you're trying to tell somebody, listen, this is a prophecy. It happened. History will tell at least 200 years before. Now, we know Isaiah was written at least 700 years before. I hope you understand. And what that's trying to tell us is that the plan of salvation has always been the plan from the beginning. There's no plan B. There's no alternate plan. It's God's plan. And because God desires that all men be saved, the plan is free. It costs nothing because Jesus paid the price in full. He took all the weight. Romans 3, excuse me, 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is right, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift is Jesus. Because without Jesus, the gift wouldn't be possible. The central part to God's plan is Jesus, and it's Jesus who's the subject of the Bible. Jesus is the verb of the Bible. He's the adjective. He's the adverb. Whatever you want to call it, on every page you find him. He's all there. He's constantly, the text is constantly pointing to Jesus. And so when a person believes on Jesus Christ, they're saved. I don't know, maybe you haven't done that today, but the offer of salvation is free. As pastor said so simply, last week. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, back in the beginning, what I said in the beginning, we are Christians because of the Old Testament. Maybe now that doesn't sound strange. How do I know that Jesus is the Messiah if I don't have all the predictions of the Old Testament defining him and describing him when he shows up in the New Testament? The simple truth here is that both the gospel in the old and the gospel in the new are the same. And the good news, the gospel has always been an Old Testament concept. God didn't decide one day, 2,000 years ago, that now would be a good time to offer the gospel. No. He did it from the very beginning. As soon as the first man sinned, 
the very next thing he did was start a plan of redemption. He did not wait. And you know why he did not wait? Because he wanted every single person of humanity to be covered under the blood of Jesus. That's why he didn't wait. And as soon as it was messed up in the garden, God set a plan out for redemption. The very next thing he did, because he desires for all men, all women, all children to be saved. Friends, that was given 700 years before Jesus ever showed up on the stage of humanity. 700 years in advance. If that doesn't help encourage and strengthen your faith in the Jesus that we serve today, I don't know what does. Because that same Jesus who Isaiah prophesied about, guess what? He's the same one that we serve today. Ain't nobody different. He's the same. So when you look at Jesus and you understand what he did for you, dig deeper into it. I didn't even have a chance to get, I'm so frustrated. I didn't have a chance to get to the rest of this text, to the other verses 7 through 12, which are great other verses too. Maybe the second half some other time when I preach, I guess. But needless to say, when you get into this text and you realize what Jesus did for you, and you had nothing to offer him, he did it just because he wanted to. Because he so wanted to make sure that what happened in the garden would be fixed. And that sin would not create a barrier between you and God. And so what's our reasonable service? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are to give ourselves to him as a reasonable service. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your, I love the word, reasonable service. It's the only thing that's required. Because you know what? The greatest, Isaiah 53 is about the greatest servant of all, and his name is Jesus. And if that servant can give us life and life everlasting, then we owe it to him at least. It's reasonable. It's only expected that we serve him with what we have.